strong and awesome and powerful, but, and we need that so often. We need to know that and be reminded that it's true, but we also need to know that there is a gentle Savior, Jesus Christ, who walks with us, particularly in our weaknesses. Father, thank you for the opportunity you give us just a few minutes this morning to, to sort of do business in our hearts. Father, I pray you take anything of the last few moments that's from or of the flesh, and Lord, you just cause it to be forgiven and forgotten. But what is of the Spirit sealed to our hearts that we might live more fully and fruitfully for you. And Father, we just take a minute now to thank you for your word as we transition into time of study and and Lord, just, just seeing what your word has to say to us as we continue on in the book of Acts. And Lord, I'm just going to ask that as always, that you would be the one who teaches us. That you would send your Holy Spirit to guide us in truth. Father, because your word is truth, and oh, how we need to hear it. Father, I ask that you send your Holy Spirit to guard us from error and, and falsehood and misunderstanding, Lord, because none of us needs to leave more confused than we came. And Father, if it's possible at this moment that any one of our hearts is still filled with apathy or indifference or pride or hardness, Lord, we ask you just to, to, to sweep it all away in the grace and by the blood of Jesus. So that for the next few minutes, Lord, we might not hear the voice of a preacher and we might not just get an outline and a big idea, but we might meet with you in a personal way and Jesus might be glorified in it all. Father, be with us now as we go to your word. May we see Jesus clearly and only. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's just take a minute. Transitions are never easy, but we'll take a minute and uh, dismiss our kiddos for Children's Church. If you've got boys and girls who are part of the Children's Church ministry, now's their time to, to head out, five-year-olds through second graders, to go spend some time in God's Word. And the rest of us are going to get into God's Word as well. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts 15. If you're not there already, if you don't have a Bible, run get one from the back and follow along with us. And ironically enough, it didn't occur to me until this moment when I looked at my notes and remembered the title of the sermon. The title of the sermon this morning is Back on Track. So let's get back on track. <laughs> but I don't mean let's get away from what we were doing and get into God's Word, but hopefully now we are back on track. Some of us in our hearts and and we're ready to hear from God. You know, oftentimes we don't know what God wants to tell us, and we can't know what God's going to tell us until we've worshipped well, until we've confessed our sin. So now perhaps we're ready, maybe I'm ready, for what God wants to say to us in his word. And we are, in fact, in Acts 15. If you're visiting this morning and you're saying, man, this place is weird, yeah, this is a weird Sunday, that's okay. I'll walk with us through it. But we're going to get into God's word now. And we've been working our way for many weeks now. Uh, one of my boys said at supper last night, Dad, how long have we been in Acts? Has it been over a year? And I, I said, yes, it's been over a year. Are we going to be in it another year? I said, yeah, we might be in it another year. I don't know. But I said, we are over halfway. We're in Acts 15. And last Sunday, we looked at a story in the first 21 verses uh, of which we're going to see the aftermath or sort of the the upshot of it here today in God's Word. And that's going to be Acts 15, verses 22 to 35. And we're going to read through that in a moment. But just for the sake of sort of getting us where we are, remembering where we've been and where we're headed, you may recall if you were here last Sunday, and you need to know if you were not, that last Sunday we looked at a story in God's Word that I called at the time perhaps one of the most pivotal moments, not just in the book of Acts, but in the entire history of the Christian church. What we looked at last Sunday was one of the most pivotal moments in all of Christian history because what happened in the first 21 verses of Acts 15 is what came to be known as the Jerusalem Council was convened. 
We said it's the only time in all the Bible where we see Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James all on the same sort of stage, as it were, together. And the reason they had gathered was for one primary overriding reason, and that was to clarify and reaffirm the message of the gospel. The message which is, as you will remember, we'll put it on the screen and you're going to say it right now with me. Say it, here we go, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead. Believe this and you will be saved. And what we saw last Sunday is the reason that gathering had to take place and the reason that affirmation had to occur uh, occur is because there were people in the church who were messing with the message. They were taking that message, we see there up on the screen, the pure, simple gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were adding conditions to it. They were saying, that's not all. There's more to the message than simply that. Specifically, what they were saying in that day and age, and this may not resonate as much with us today, but it certainly did then. They said, really, in order to become a Christian, you got to become a Jew first. That in order to get to Jesus, you as Jews do have to go through, you have to go through Moses, obeying the Old Testament law as they had done for thousands of years. And what happened at the Jerusalem Council is everybody got together. It was such a big deal. They had to deal with that message. They had to correct that error and get the story straight. So they met and they rejected any possible additions, pre- or post-conditions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said there's one message of salvation. It is sufficient for everyone. They got the story straight. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. Believe that and that only, and you will be saved. And so now that mission's been accomplished. And it's time to take what was decided and reaffirm there in Jerusalem and get it back to all the churches that had been established where the message was still being corrupted or the potential for it to be corrupted still existed. It was time to get the ministry back on track. And that is precisely what happened in the verses we are going to look at here today. Acts 15 Verses 22 through 35, where follow along as I read, this is what God's word says. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch. That's where the sort of the whole problem first erupted, or most clearly erupted. Go back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. Here's the letter, quote, The apostles and the brethren who were elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood and from things strangled, and from fornication. And if you keep yourself free from, these, from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. And after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Let me boil that down to a single sentence. The early church got it right. 
having been faced with a crisis of epic proportions, literally the stakes in this matter could not have been higher. How do you get to heaven? How can someone be reconciled to God? There's no greater question than that. A a crisis of epic proportions. Those who gathered at the Jerusalem council, they arrived at the correct conclusion. No pre or post conditions may be added to the gospel. And then they communicated that message back to the churches in a way that enhanced their unity, that elevated their witness, and glorified God. And in the time we have left, I want to show you how they did it. Specifically, what I want to do, and we're going to have to move fast to do this, I want to show you five reasons why the early church got it right. Five reasons why the early church got this thing right. And as always, we're going to see what they did and see what we can learn from it as followers of Jesus Christ today. How do you get it right when there's controversy in the church, particularly when it's something as foundational as the gospel itself. Five reasons why they got it right. Number one, we got to say we got to move quickly. The first and perhaps the most important reason or way that the early church got this thing right is that the decision they made was established in unity. It was a decision and a direction they established in unity. Because flowing from from what they decided last Sunday, specifically in verses 19 and 20, where James stood up and he said, okay, here's the deal. Here's the gospel. There are no conditions. And here's how we can move forward together as a unified body of believers. Listen again to what they did then in verse 22. Look at your Bible. It says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men among them to send Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, and those men were Judas and Silas. In other words, they were in agreement with the decision that had made. Everyone in the whole church agreed with the decision that was made, and in unity, they said, now we've got to get this word back out. What I'm saying is, from the looks of things, there were no dissenters. Everyone in the church agreed with what was decided, that there is one gospel message, and it's sufficient for everyone, and it was in that unity that they began to communicate it back out, and that is huge. Never underestimate how huge that was, because here's the bottom line, and it's just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Without unity, a church has zero credibility. Without unity, a church, the church, any church has zero credibility. What I'm saying is if a church can't get its act together relationally, If the members of a church cannot get their act together internally, if they aren't committed to resolving differences in grace and truth, listen, that church has nothing to say to the world. And that's fine because the world would have quit listening anyway. They don't care. (laughs) They say, you want me to become that? I don't think so. You can't get your own act together, and you're telling me this is God's way of loving me and having a wonderful plan for my life. It doesn't look that way to me. Unity is critical to a church, any church, the church, moving forward. And on issues like this, there simply is no room to disagree. When you're talking about the gospel message itself, there is no room for disagreement. There is one gospel message with no variations. There are one of several essential truths like that that we hold to. And simply, if you don't agree with that or don't believe that, frankly, you're not in the church and you don't belong to Jesus Christ. This gospel message we saw here earlier, that's it. We must all agree that what the Bible says about the gospel is 100% true. It's, there are several truths all believers much, must share. And when it comes to maybe we would call them lesser issues or secondary issues, they're not the way of salvation, the virgin birth of Christ, who God is and his identity and all those sorts of things. Maybe we call them lesser or secondary issues where sometimes we would say, yeah, there is room to disagree, to approach an issue differently or to see it from another perspective. And 
And remember, that was dealt with here. First of all, they established what is the gospel, but then what the purpose of this letter that the church sent out was, was now how do we get along (laughs) as those who believe the same thing, but we're different kinds of people. Well, the principle there, when there is room for disagreement, different perspectives, different angles on what the scriptures, well, we're trying to figure out what the scriptures are saying, the principle to follow is very simple. Maybe you've heard it before. It's to disagree without being disagreeable until we figure it out. To disagree without behaving disagreeably as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Simply put, there is no room. Everybody say, there's no room. There's no room in a body of believers in the church of Jesus Christ to go public with our great gripes and our complaints and our issues and our problems, to do it privately in in small company, it all stays in this room, or to do it publicly, uh, uh, social media, email, whatever the case may be, with our gripes and our issues and our complaints and our differences in the church or in the wider world. And I would say even, this is not thus saith the Lord, but it is thus thinketh Aaron, even after we've worked it out. You and I have a difference. We get together, in grace and truth, we work it out. I've got no business going and telling the world, well, what, wouldn't you like to know what they thought and what I thought and this fight we had? We worked it out, but man, why? What purpose is served? That's my opinion. I'm not sure I can back that up with a verse, but it sure seems to promote harmony and unity the way I see it and the way I see the church functioning here. Because the bottom line is this, when we disagree... As believers, when you disagree with me or I disagree with you, I have an obligation and you have an obligation. And the obligation is this, to protect the integrity of my brothers and sisters in Christ. To protect the reputation and the heart of my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And frankly, of the five reasons we're going to look at this morning, this is the most important. It's why I'm spending the most time on it. Because if this didn't happen, none of the other four things would would have happened anyway. There wouldn't have been room for them to occur. So the first and the foundational, the primary reason the early church got this right is they decided we're going to figure this thing out. We are going to arrive at unity and then move forward with our decision. Reason number one, the early church got it right. They made their decision to move forward. They established it in unity. Secondly, I want to mention this one just for a moment or two, but it's important that we see that in verse 24, a second reason or way the early church got it right is they took the issue before them and they addressed it squarely. They addressed the issue, this question of the gospel and of fellowship among believers of different heritages and backgrounds. They addressed that issue squarely because it should be noted that in conveying what they had to say back to the churches, their affirmation of the gospel message and the ways that Jews and Gentiles who had both trusted Christ could fellowship together. I'd have you know, look at verse 24, that the council was very clear about what happened. It wasn't all worked out in secret behind the scenes. They were very clear, very upfront with what had happened, and yet they communicated that without doing unnecessary harm. Look at verse 24. So guys, here's the deal. We have heard, we had heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction, we heard that they had disturbed you with their words unsettling their souls, and so that's why we got together and began to work things out. To arrive at a place of clarity and resolution. In other words, what What the leaders at the Jerusalem council said was this. Hey, said, guys, there was a problem among us. There was a problem in the church. There was disagreement and there was division and there was, in fact, heresy being promoted. People were messing with the message. And and secondly, what verse 24 says is that those who did that did it without our approval. We didn't send them out. We didn't tell them this was a good idea. They did it on their own initiative. 
There was a problem. They were messing with the message. They did it without our permission. And, and third, in verse 24, they said, and those actions were destructive. What they did was, in fact, destructive. If you look at your Bible, it says they were unsettling your souls. Your translation may say they were troubling their souls. That word in Greek literally means they were plundering and tearing you down. They were tearing the church of Jesus Christ apart. And so what the the council, Peter and Paul and James and Barnabas and others, wanted understood is, is, guys, what we're doing here, this letter we're sending to you and sending Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas is meant to clean up the mess. We want to clean this mess up so that we can get back on track. Back to the business of what God called us to do, which is to take his glorious gospel to the world. And my point here is simply, note how they did that. They addressed the issue squarely, but they did it without igniting further division. They did it without either making the problem worse or creating a whole new set of problems. Specifically, that is to say, at least what, according to what I see here in the scripture, in doing so, in dealing with a problem in the church, they didn't name names, they didn't call names, and, and they didn't communicate it with, with irony or subtle nudges or implications or ridicule or wisecracks or critical spirits. They just dealt with the issue in grace and truth and, and moved on. And you know what that means? It means they moved forward in the same spirit of the gospel they'd met to affirm in the first place. They dealt clearly, truthfully, graciously, making Jesus, once again, the the center, the gospel, the central thing. They moved forward in the spirit of the gospel that they proclaimed. And it's the second reason why they got it right. First of all, their number one, their decision was established in unity. Their direction was established in a spirit of great unity. Secondly, they, they got through this and back on track because they took the issue set before them and they dealt with it squarely. They didn't run from it and they didn't hide from it and they didn't manipulate it. Third, this is huge as well. According to verses 25 through 27, the Third reason the early church got this right and got back on track is because the the decision they made and the direction they chose was affirmed by proven leaders. They affirmed their decision and the direction by the ministry and the presence of proven leaders. And if you look at verses 25 through 27 with me again, what we have in those three verses is evidence of, of just how serious the council was, the early church council was, in their desire to get the ministry back on track. Because I suppose that they could have done, they arrived at this decision, we saw it last Sunday, this is the gospel and there's no additions to be made to it, and here are principles for how we can move forward, even though there are Jewish believers and Gentile believers and people from all over the place who are so very different, here's how we can move forward together. I suppose what they could have done is just gone sort of the, the, the missionary letter style. Let's write the letter, let's make a bunch of copies and send it to everybody, and that would have been fine. But I suppose that could have been received by churches scattered all over the empires. Well, here's our decision. Deal with it. Just get over it. Deal with it. Move forward. I'm not knocking missionary letters. I'm just saying they could have gone the simplest, cheapest route possible and sent them a note. But that's not what they did. Look at your Bible. They went the extra mile, as Jesus told them to do, when they said this, verse 25. So it seemed good to us because there was a problem that needed to be dealt with. Having become of one mind... To select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have also sent Judas, this is not Judas Iscariot, obviously, this is another Judas, and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. What I want you to see here, what we need to see here, is is that there's a whole lot more happening in those three verses than simply 
It's not just that they're sending a letter, but they're sending four kind of heavies to enforce it. <laughs> it's not like that. We're going to send you Paul and Barnabas and, and Judas and Silas as well to show you we're really serious and you better get your act together and get in line. There's more than that happening here because while there's not a ton of evidence necessarily to, to, to sort of back it out, what we can see, what we can pick up in the scriptures, and this is an interesting point, a, a really a brilliant move, I'm sure led by the Holy Spirit that the apostles and elders made, is they sent these two additional men. One, it says his name was Judas, also called Barsabbas. And, and we don't know anything more about him, really, than, than what's mentioned about him right here. But based on what we are told here, what we can probably con- safely conclude is he was a Jew. Uh, Judas is a Jewish name. He was a Jewish convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. While Silas, of whom beginning next week we're going to learn a whole lot more in the rest of the New Testament, was almost, if not absolutely certainly, a Gentile believer in Jesus Christ. So they're sending this letter. Here's how, as people who share a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from radically different backgrounds can move forward and keep the ministry on track and keep the gospel the main thing. Here's the letter saying how we can move forward. And you know what? Just to show you how unified we are, we're going to send you a Jewish convert to Christ and a Gentile convert to Christ to affirm the decision that's been made. Representative of their people saying, we're in on this. We agree. Both groups are on the same page. And I'm referring to them as proven leaders. Here's what I mean. Here's what I'm really driving at. What I mean by that is that in communicating with these scattered local churches, because the letter went to Antioch, but certainly it would have gone to the other churches as well. What the Jerusalem Council did, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, James, whoever else was involved, in communicating with these scattered independent local churches The council chose men to the best, as we can tell, of established reputation. Men of established Christ-like reputation. Men who, because of some combination of time and commitment and sacrifice and service and character and example, had proved that they're not just committed just to Jesus Christ, but they're also committed to caring for his people. Men of proven character, whose lives would authenticate the message they were communicating. Guys who were without personal agenda. We're not in this to create an audience for ourselves. We're not in this because we want followers who, who, who cheer for us every time we walk in the room. No, men of proven character. What does it say? Look at your Bible, verse 26. What does it say about Paul and Barnabas? It says they were men who had shed blood for Jesus Christ. Hadn't they already? We've seen that. I'd say that's proven character. And everything we, again, we don't hear anymore about Judas, but what we see of Silas is that throughout the rest of Paul's ministry, Silas was a like-minded man. That he endured the hardships with Paul. Proven character. And I think we, we dare not underestimate how critical that was in getting the ministry back on track. Communicate the message through men who are proven Christ-like servants. Devoted to Christ, but committed to his people. That, too, helped them get the ministry back on track. They, they began in a spirit of unity. They addressed, secondly, the issue squarely. Third, they affirmed the direction through the use of proven leaders. And then fourth, certainly on, on equal footing with the, the principles that have come before it, is in doing so, fourth, they kept the gospel in focus. How do they get back on track? How do they keep the ministry moving forward? They kept the gospel They kept the main thing, the main thing, as has been said here many times before. They kept the gospel of Jesus Christ in central focus. Now I realize, and I want you to look at your Bible with me, we're in verses 28 and 29. 
that the gospel itself isn't actually mentioned in these two verses. In fact, in the whole passage we're looking at this morning, the gospel isn't ever mentioned at all. In no verse do we see the message we put on the screen here earlier, our summary of it, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead. And believe, if you believe this, anyone who believes this will be saved. That's not found in this passage. And it's certainly not found in these next two verses. Instead, what's found in verses 28 and 29 What's recorded here, it's almost an exact replica of what James said last week in verses 19 and 20. He doesn't give the gospel in the letter. Instead, he gives guidelines for fellowship between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Again, people who had come to a shared faith in Christ from vastly different cultural, religious, social, maybe even economic backgrounds. There's no gospel here, but there are principles for how believers can live together. And specifically, he said, if you are in on this thing, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you're concerned for the unity of the church and the ministry of the gospel, that the rest of the world would come to know the Lord as you have, he said, then there are three things I need you to do. And again, we talked about last week how this is not contradictory to the gospel, it's complementary to the gospel. But look at your Bible, he gave him three words of instruction. He said, there are three things moving forward, specifically here he's speaking to the Gentiles, that he calls them to abstain from, not for the sake of salvation, but for the sake of fellowship. Number one, he says in verses 28 and 29, says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that number one, you abstain from things sacrificed to idols. Now, namely, what they have in mind there is food, meat sacrificed to idols, as in pagan cultures in that day, it was a very common thing First of all, to worship idols, and then as a sacrifice, to, to sacrifice meat to them. And it was actually kind of a neat deal, because you could sacrifice your meat to the idol, and then you could take it back and eat it, all right? That's kind of a nice, handy religion, I suppose, very convenient in many ways. But that was a common practice among the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now that they're believers, they go, well, the idol doesn't mean anything. It's, it's a false god. No big deal to eat it, because it wasn't really given to a god in the first place, but the Jews saw it differently. You've read the Old Testament, the Jews had a long, sordid history, entanglement with idolatry. And for a Jew and a Gentile to sit down at a potluck together, and the Gentile to open his picnic basket and take out meat that had formerly been sacrificed to idol and eat it, that was a conscience killer for a Jew. It wasn't wrong, it didn't inflict or harm anyone's salvation, but it was a conscience issue for a Jew. And so James said, and the council said, listen, for the sake of fellowship, here's, here's a small sacrifice you can make. A small bit of surrender you can do. Not because you have to, but because you want to for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Don't create a crisis of conscience for those who are coming out of this old system into the freedom there is in Jesus Christ. Nor, secondly, he said, said the second thing I'd ask you to abstain from, he's saying to these early Gentile believers, abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and things strangled. And, and by things strangled, he's talking about animals that had been killed for the sake of ultimately eating them. And, and strangulation would leave blood in the body. That's why it's co- combined here, sort of connected with the idea of blood. And, and that was also an eating or a conscience issue for Jews. Because way before God ever gave the law, actually in Genesis chapter 9, God said to his people, don't eat blood. Genesis 9, 4. Don't consume it. And And so now, even though they're in the freedom of the new covenant, which was read for us in Jeremiah 31 earlier, and and, and that it wasn't a conscience or a a religious issue for the Gentiles, again, for the Jews coming out of the Old Old Testament system into the freedom of Jesus Christ, it was still a conscience killer. And he said, listen, you can go a long way toward building harmony and unity in the church if you stay away from essentially rare meat, (laughs) or the blood's still on the plate. Don't do it. 
It's harmful to fellowship. And then third, he said, abstain. And this is not a conscience issue. This is absolutely a biblical principle and rule. He said, abstain from fornication, i.e. sexual immorality of any kind. Now, why would he include that? Because their culture was just like ours. Sexual immorality, no big deal. Do what you want to do, live like you want to live, look at what you want to look at, be who you want to be with. And the message of the Jerusalem Council is that's, that's a critical so, uh, issue in, in society of that day as it is in ours. And everybody excuses it. Believers don't excuse it. Because God had consistently made clear since the beginning of, of the Bible, all the way through to the end, that, that excusing sexual immorality is just not, that's a, that's a non-starter, a non-option. He said, so abstain from that for the sake of fellowship in the body of Christ. And so again, what am I saying? I'm saying, well, the gospel wasn't mentioned here. Principles for fellowship were mentioned. But here's the thing. What was mentioned, abstaining from these things for the sake of fellowship, allowed the gospel to remain the main thing. Because we're fighting about lesser issues, and we aren't arguing about them. Uh, Jews, you're supposed to, he said last week, lay down this, this insistence you have that Gentiles become Jews in order to become believers. That's your part in this equation. Then he said to the Gentiles, stop doing things that unnecessarily offend the Jews, even though you consider them uh, things that you are free and able to do as followers of Christ. Why? So we are fighting all the time. And so the gospel can remain the main thing. We can get back on track and stick to the message of spreading salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing. When believers get divided, the gospel gets lost. It's always the first thing to go. When believers get divided over issues like this here, the color of carpet is the old one. People always go back to what color are we going to paint the church walls? How are we going to move forward in the what instantly happens, suddenly we're no longer talking about the gospel, we're talking about preference and, and personal agenda. Suddenly we're not doing what Jesus called us to do. When believers get divided, the gospel gets lost. And so by, by calling in verses 28 and 29 to the church to these precious few basic commitments, Jews don't insist on circumcision in the law, Gentiles don't dismiss your Jewish brothers and sisters' cherished heritage, the gospel could remain in crystal clear focus. The wildfire fire could continue to burn, which it did. Because the fifth and final thing, I'm going to tell you this and then we're done, is that it kindled further growth. The fifth and final thing we need to see in this passage this morning is that what they did kindled further growth. And I realize that's really more of a proof than a reason. It's not really a reason why they got it right. It's more evidence that they got the decision right, clarifying the gospel and handing down principles for fellowship among believers. But whatever the case, if Jesus really meant it when he said, you'll know a tree by its fruit, and, and I have a hunch Jesus meant it when he said that. Anybody agree with me on that one? Jesus usually meant what he said. If Jesus meant what he said when he said, you will know a, a, a tree by its fruit, I think what happened in the final five or six verses of the story, the passage before us this morning, is a great illustration of that truth. Because even a very quick look at verses 30 through 35, the conclusion of the council and the letter they sent out to the churches, shows that flowing from the decision they made and the direction they established and the way they chose to communicate it, the church continued to mature and to grow. Real quick, I'm going to read you, read you those, follow along those last six verses again. It says, so when they were sent away, Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, everybody's present, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced. 
They didn't grumble. They rejoiced. Why? Because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas also, being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Hey, let's hear it for lengthy messages right there. I have a hunch they would not have permitted a lengthy message if they hadn't been encouraged by what they heard in the first place. But because they were encouraged, they allowed for a lengthy message. They said, give us more of this stuff. Tell us more of what it means to follow Jesus. Tell us more of what it means to to move forward on track with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says, and after they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace. Back to those who had sent them out. Seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas stayed on, teaching and preaching with many others also. The word of the Lord. What happened? The church did the right thing, the right way, and God allowed them to continue to grow. God enabled them and equipped them to continue to grow. And I think that's particularly instructive for us today, when you realize that while what they decided, in fact, was and should have been warmly welcomed among the fellowship of believers, oh, here's how we can get along, and here's how we can get back on track, and it was, in fact, welcomed by the believers, I think the fact that they did the right thing the right way is particularly instructive, and that God honored it when you realize that while it would have been welcomed among the churches, it would have been despised by their culture. The culture they were in, the Jewish primarily culture they were in, would not have welcomed this decision at all. Instead, one authority, one authority on church history and and this particular story says that, quote, what the the council decided and acted upon here, here's what he said, was one of the most courageous documents, decisions in the annals of the entire history of the Christian church because its authors declared the truth of the matter even though they knew it would antagonize the culture. Their authors did the right thing, even though they knew their culture would hate it. There's a, is there a lesson there? Oh, yeah, there's a lesson there. The biblical stand, it may have been popular in the church, it wasn't popular in the culture, but it was the right thing to do. And because they did the right thing and they did it in the right way, what did God do? God honored it. And it says many more continued to come to know Jesus Christ. It kindled further growth. You know, as we've gone through the book of Acts, we've talked a lot about growth. Talked a lot about the wildfire-like growth of the church. That's, in fact, of course, been our theme as we've gone through the book. And I'll admit I'll be the first to say that, that on almost every, if not on every occasion where I've used that sort of language up here, talking about the wildfire-like growth of the church, I'll be the first to say I've almost always been thinking numeric. Numeric growth. And, and that, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. In fact, if you go through the book of Acts, you find that on six specific occasions, some people outline the book this way, Luke himself, the author of Acts, makes, uh, points out numeric growth, the, the, the people growth of the church. He says things like the church continued to grow and multiply. They were adding to their numbers daily. Once we're even told how many? 3,000 in a single day. So to those who would say it's inherently fleshly and carnal and sinful to look at numbers in the church, I say Luke would disagree. He was paying attention to the numbers of the growth of the church of Jesus Christ, and he wrote them down for us. But you know, as God's timing would have it, we had a staff meeting here at church this week, just a little inside baseball information here. 
We had a staff meeting, and, and, and Greg, for the past many months, has been taking our staff on a monthly basis through a study of, of what makes a healthy church. What is a healthy church? And as God would have it, the discussion this week was on church growth. And what is healthy growth? And as we sat around the table, it's one of the best discussions we've had in a very long time. Um, we acknowledge that numeric growth is one of the things we look at when we talk about a growing church. That includes numbers. But we also, and this is where our discussion really went and why it was so rich, talked about what authentic church growth also must involve is the internal progress of the men and women who chil- and children who attend it. Are you moving toward maturity in Jesus Christ? Am I moving toward maturity in Jesus Christ? Are we moving toward maturity in Jesus Christ? Do we look and act more like Jesus today than we did a month, six months, or a year ago? And you know how we'll know if that's happening? You know how we'll know if that's what's taking place? It'll show up in the kind of things we've seen here in Acts 15 this morning. Mutual submission, personal surrender, an attitude of humility, not caring who gets the credit or who gets the spotlight. Following the Spirit's lead rather than our own program's or agendas, and ultimately a passion to see lost people turn to Jesus Christ. That's church growth, too, of the very best kind. We compared it in the course of the discussion. It was compared, the analogy, and you've probably heard it before, to that of a tree. You can look at a tree, and what do you see above ground? The tree's healthy. You see branches and limbs and leaves and fruit. You say, well, that looks like a healthy tree. But the only thing that makes it healthy, the only thing that keeps it healthy, is what we can't see, which is what? The roots beneath the surface. And for a tree to continue to, to grow and mature and bear fruit and turn leaves season in and season out, what they tell us, at least what I've heard, and I'm no scientist, but that the roots beneath the surface need to essentially equal what we can see above it, that they need to be deep and they need to be healthy and they need to be rich and they need to be interconnected for that tree to continue to grow and endure. And I would suggest as we close this morning, that's exactly what happened here. We aren't necessarily told in Acts 15 the church grew numerically, but boy, did their roots go deep. Because they figured out the gospel, or they reaffirmed the gospel. They figured out how can we get along even though we're so very different. And it says they agreed to it wholeheartedly. They were encouraged and they were blessed. And I would submit to you, they grew stronger through the crisis. All of which points to today's big idea, which is very simple, and then we're done. God never fails to move his church forward. God never fails to move his church forward. Sometimes he does it in joy and blessing. Sometimes he does it through great adversity, but he will always move his church forward. Are we on board in our hearts together with him? Father, I pray that we are, and that if we aren't, that we will be. Father, that we will follow the example of our Ancient brothers and sisters, fellow believers in Jesus Christ, the Peters and Pauls and Barnabases and James and Judases and Silas and the countless unnamed others who kept the main thing the main thing. They stayed focused on the gospel. And then they said, now how can we do this together for God's glory as a witness to the wider world? How can we, in grace and truth, move forward and get along Father, I praise you that you have given us, by everything I can see, a church that is here at Maranatha that is unified, where this is the kind of stuff we're trying to do, but Father, we're always going to need to do better because storms will continue to come. 
Father, may our roots here at Maranatha, may my roots, may each of my brothers and sisters, young and old's roots, be sinking ever deeper into the soil of your word, feeding on it, trusting in your spirit to have your way among us. Father, thank you that that stories, Lord, your word, 2,000 years old, is just as fresh and relevant today as it's ever been. God, help us move forward in grace and truth, not for our own sake, but for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.